Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Ruining Your Childhood, the Pitfalls of Nostalgia. My name is Colin Cassard, also known as Hash Adams. I had the pleasure of sitting down with the Juno-nominated Toronto producer and studio engineer, the great, the one, the only, Fresh Kills. If you are unfamiliar with Fresh Kills music, I highly suggest you check it out. I got to sit down with him. Uh, I met him while he was on tour in the Northwest uh, with a good buddy, a mutual friend of both of ours, uh, Ben Durazzo. Andrew has felt like just one of, one of those old friends. He's one of those types where you meet him and, you know, he's instantly, you want to be friends with him. He's very charismatic, he's a great person, very intelligent. Well, I felt very honored to be able to sit down and have a conversation with him. This chat, this interview, uh, took a little bit longer than we anticipated, and so I am going to break it up into two parts. Part one is coming up here shortly. Part two will be released next week, next Sunday, that is, and make sure that you tune in. At the end of each episode, I'm going to go ahead and play a little bit of Gold Dust for you. That is a song from Our Man Fresh Kills, so make sure that you stay tuned till the end, and you will get a preview of some really good tunes coming up. Make sure that you go ahead and follow Fresh Kills on all social media platforms. That is Fresh Kills, spelt with one L. You can also find him on Bandcamp. You can also find him on YouTube. Make sure you check out his YouTube page. His beat battles are very good. Here's Fresh Kills. We don't have to talk about the ukraine hey you got the uh, ball You're I, yeah well i wrote a paper a while back uh saying talking about the american military industrial complex and how there was a realization post-world war ii that the american economy is best it best operates in a capitalistic sense under war and so essentially we we've been at a, a state of war since korea so you know the last 70 two years yeah it was then, i mean it was built that way right that's the foundational element like building tanks yeah you know build, building tanks to just basically let's throw because the germans see when the germans build a tank they build like a piece of art tank like yeah. they build like a beautiful well-designed chic tank and the americans build a bunch of shitty tanks but they build like 10 tanks for every one tank the germans have and then you just overwhelm the motherfuckers yeah numbers yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, America. America. And uh, oh, I mean, yeah. Canada's been in the news with the whole fucking the 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 freedom convoy. I do. Yes, I do want to get this out of the way because sometimes my American friends make this faux pas. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is this is a classic American gaffe. So I'm gonna I'm gonna prevent you from doing that. Uh, not that you would, but I have a lot of I have a lot of smart, uh, intelligent educated american friends who make the classic mistake of assuming and and you know look canada canadians like myself we like to we also like to project and 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 you know own or wear the hat of like hey we're better you know or we're better on racism we're better on race relations we're better on and it's just it's totally ridiculous it's not true at all 
in fact, Canada is way wider than the States. Like from a population standpoint, let's just talk demographics. Um, you know, like everybody was doing this whole, like, oh, I guess Canada probably thinks that we're like, somebody said, uh, it was the tweet was, you know, like you got, we're like on, we're living in an apartment above you guys. And you guys are like the, you guys are like cooking meth in the bottom apartment and we're above. And I, it was a funny kind of joke and a meme for a while, but like I went to the, I went to, there was a guy in blackface at city hall. Okay. Protesting like the convoy. I mean, the convoy we're inspiring you guys. You guys now have the people's convoy starting leaving California. That's true. Um, So, I mean, look, every single, literally almost every week or every other week since, I don't know, maybe two years ago, we're finding unmarked graves at, uh, at indigenous, uh, for indigenous children. I was going to say the, our country. Yeah, the Canadian record with the indigenous murders and, and the indoctrination and everything is the residential really cool. schools. It's insane. It's insane. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. You know, like uh Africville in Halifax getting bulldozed. Literally black folks coming home from work and their houses are bulldozed and they've got to get on a bus to be shipped to Truro because Africville was sitting right on the Bedford Basin, right on the right around the bridge area, right? Right real estate, you know. Can't have, you know, can't have that. Can't have Africville. So the, the the record's ridiculous. And so when I get kind of, I don't want to say pissed off, but I get like, I get a little, def- I get a little defensive when my American friends are like, oh, it's so much better. And it's funny. Like- you're getting defensive, like about it being bad. <laughs> yeah. You're like, whoa, dude, you know, like this is, you need to calm down. We suck too. I mean, okay. To- we- it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're self-deprecating for the country. Uh, no, but it's it's good. I mean, that's Canadian. The the concept of pe- anyone thinking that they're better than other people is always a bad thing, right? And I mean, me me growing up in Bellingham, you know, uh, right on the Canadian border. So I had a lot of. I went to beautiful Canada town, all the time. By the way, it, beautiful town. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There are a lot of things that I dislike about it. To me, I was talking about this yesterday as I was getting a tattoo. And my tattoo artist is from Salem and I'm from Bellingham. We're both from just kind of these little towns in the, in the Northwest. But we recognize this concept that in the Northwest, more so it stops at about Portland, but it goes from Portland up. And then it kind of extends to Canada a little bit what you're saying, but this concept of that, like we're better than other people. It's like not, I don't think it, it extends everywhere in Canada, but you get it a little bit in Vancouver where it's like Vancouver is almost like the LA of Canada yeah, where you get a lot of people that are just like, Oh, well, you know, you know, we're, I don't know. It's just this, this, I don't know. Every time I went to Vancouver, I guess. This, this, this of course stems from the identity crisis of being Canadian. Like Canadians have this identity crisis because the America is so dominant as a culture, as an economy, everything else. We're the big brother just like yelling and you guys are just like, well, we we're here too. Well, we're trying and we're grasping at straws to figure like what is our identity. And we have all these funny things like, you know, moose and beaver and being polite and saying sorry and, playing hockey and all of these like these kind of extremes and ridiculous ridiculous extremes whereas like really there is almost zero zero difference like you know tacitly zero yeah i mean we're all cologne we're all from a colonial base that came over at the same time yeah and you know the only difference is you're is is, is we decided to establish a line and then you know, you guys get different benefits than your government from your government than we do. And that's yeah, we wanted to hang out. We 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 liked the Queen's give handouts. 
we took them a little longer than you guys did. That's very true. We we did not want those queen handouts. We're the queen, who by the way could be dead, definitely has COVID. She's ninety five. The the rumors are that she's dead. I I I could personally care less about the queen, but the royalty thing has never been. I've never been. I never understood it. You know what I mean? I'm like, why do we care? I mean, you know what? There's, there's, here's something, and this actually speaks to the identity of things. Cause so in Britain, the royal family is like a cultural phenomenon. It's a big thing, big thing, big thing, big thing, right? In the States, and you guys may not realize how, what a phenomenon this is different from everywhere else. The college sports thing is like a religion in the States that, and, and I say that because it does not exist. And really, I don't want to, I don't know anywhere else, but in Canada, it does not exist. Like, I don't think it exists anywhere else. It's essentially a slave system that like is slowly being changed and people are starting to acknowledge that it's fucked up, yeah. but it's like, it's really fucked up. It's a multi, multi-billion dollar industry that yeah. they don't have to pay any athletes. And now they're finally like, oh, I guess you guys can go out and get your own contracts. I mean, it's a cultural, but it's also a cultural phenomenon. True. Like in, in a small town, there are small towns that literally have nothing else about them except their university football team, you know? And that's like, that is literally the church that everybody goes to and whatever. Like, I remember being in my, one of my first shows in Columbus. I'd never seen oh, anything yeah. like it before. <laughs> I'd never seen it. Like, I don't know, Ohio State yeah. game. We had a show that night. I mean, who the hell would have booked? We, of course, the Canadian's going to book it because we don't understand it. It was like- well, There's always right- those oversights when touring. <laughs> Yeah, we went to Columbus, and it was like we couldn't even get a slice of pizza, dude. Like it was, it was like, it was a bigger party than anything I've ever seen. It was every two houses, every three houses was a raging keg party. Mm-hmm. Um, the streets were you couldn't drive anywhere. Mm-hmm. You, could, you couldn't get pizza. You couldn't get a cup of coffee. It was, I'd never seen anything like it. I was like, this is, you guys shut down this whole town like every time there's a game. I'm like, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. You get those small towns. The giant with the universities and then the influx of people. Like I've partied in at U of O a bunch. And U of O is a perfect example because Eugene is a time it's probably like what's the population of Columbus? It's over a hundred thousand, right? I don't know, but it can't be it's it's okay. So Eugene's probably small. a comp yeah, it's a comparable size, right? And it's like not even on a major crazy. highway. Yeah. And so yeah, keggers everywhere. You know, you have eighty thousand people coming into the city and then all everyone, you know, partying and it's just like there's no infrastructure for it. Yeah. And, but yeah, the, the university, the, it is a good way to put it is it is a religious zeal behind, you know, there's a fanaticism about it. Yeah. What, well, yeah. it that's one of the things I really love about, cause I love the 30 for 30 docs. And, uh, the, th- I feel like there's a few 30 for 30 docs that really kind of examine that and, and get you into like how, or like uh, all in all this, you know, from the betting scandals and the point shaving stuff to the 83, that 83 Cinderella team. Like I've watched that documentary three times and I've cried three times. Good. It is an unbelievable story. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and, and we have to be fair and we have to say, despite the fact that sports are the ultimate distraction from everything and really important, I think it's ironic here we are. And it's like the most compelling stories I mean, I like I love basketball, but like, I don't know how you could get into it and not understand. Like, you're talking about like this. I just find the the stories behind sports so much more compelling than I do. Like, I can't watch TV. Like, I don't care about. I can't watch eight seasons of or two seasons of anything. Um, I'd rather hear about 
you know, Kyrie Irving, unvaccinated, young millionaire flat earther uh, who refuses to play basketball and get vaccinated. And like, like that, that is such a compelling real thing that's happening that like, you can't make a drama that's going to engross me to that level. Like, you know, I could, I could go on and on and on. Like there's so many stories like Van Vliet, you know, I'm Raptors fan. He's highest paid undrafted player of all time. You know, like his, his story is real and crazy and more compelling than any, you know, Netflix series that you could put in front of me. Like I just can't. So yeah, the, the drama of real life and then sports really like, yeah, there are a lot of, I mean, every single sport has a lot of ethical, uh, you know, questionable things when you dig in enough. But the fact is that sports brings the, like the, the best and yeah, it's the best version of the story of like, of human emotion and things like that. There's just like, and triumph, a, yeah. Yeah, and triumph, and it's just such a big encompassing. Um, it just encompasses all of it, just like what it means to be human, what it means to to push yourself and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a true crime fan too, for the same reason. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, you know, what's your favorite true crime doc? Oh. I mean, I feel like there's there's only one that's like the real answer, but you know, I'm. <laughs> Oh God. I don't think I've ever gotten like I was crying and screaming at the screen when I watched the documentary about the um the sisters, the nuns in Baltimore. Uh it's called the um I can't remember what it's called now. It's five in the morning. I thought I'd put it on and I would just go to sleep and I was completely riveted. Um it's about the 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 priests in Baltimore that are abusing um young people and their the schools are colluding and the cops, the local cops are colluding sleepers or something. Goodness. I can't remember what it is. Is it on HBO? It was on Netflix at the time. I, I'm, I'm terrible that I don't remember the name of it, but that I had the most visceral, physical, emotional response to that, that I've ever had watching anything. Like I've never been more angry at a screen in my life. Hmm. Um, I was so upset. There's moments in that documentary that are just so in- ridiculous. And the, the one key thing where the whole thing turns, which I find really fascinating, is this idea of of repressed memories mm-hmm. and, and what that means in a legal sense. Because you, how, how, do you, how do you prosecute anyone or, or how do you get justice when based on memories that you've repressed that don't, you know, don't actually kind of exist in your brain until a certain amount of time has passed or you're triggered by something? Anyways, um, that's not the best answer. I know there's other good ones. There's so many good ones, but good Lord. I mean, the, even the podcast world has so much, there's so much great true crime podcast stuff. Yeah, too. yeah that's true. Um, What's your answer? Well, my answer is the jinx. Oh God, it's so good. It's, it's exactly like I've watched it four oh. times, I think over the years. <laughs> and it's like, even knowing the ending, I'm just like, this is so well made. It's such a crazily intriguing story. I think it was actually every time yeah, that Robert Durst would come up in the, yeah, he just yeah. died. But every time he came up in the news, I'd be like, all right, I got to go back and gotta watch that. Yeah. I mean, even though the staircase wasn't, wasn't like, it wasn't a great ending. I found that absolutely riveting. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of crazy ones too, where you're like, what's the actual, like, what's the truth? And you will never know. And yeah. Yeah, the uh, the making a murder documentary was extremely frustrating and very good as well. The one on the two seasons on uh, yeah. Netflix. 
I actually really liked the second season, even though because I really enjoyed the procedural aspects, from, like from a lawyer, you know, like procedurally a lawyer worth her weight in gold actually taking down the facts, which which obviously makes the lawyers in the first one look look inept. But I actually found that more enjoyable because she's actually going through and asking a lot of the questions that you were had. You you again yeah. screaming at the screen in the fr- screen at the first first set. Um, in the end, I don't even know. I can't, well, the brother did it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I'm the same way with, with books. Like I, I, I crave autobiographies. I've, I've, I've inhaled every rock autobiography there is. Hmm. I've like, my favorite books are autobiographies. Um, you, I'm current, yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but, uh, did you read the, tr- it's a true crime book on Israel keys? Like an no, true but American I, predator. No, but I've been told. I someone told me I needed to read. I, my mom might have mentioned that one to yeah, me. Yeah, I just read that one, and that's it's crazy because yeah. you know it's all from the perspective of the investigative team, and so the, the book starts out and they have him in custody essentially, mm. and they don't know anything about him, and so they just like start like pulling the strings and figuring yeah. it all out as he you know, and it's it's crazy, and he clearly is just like manipulating everything. Is, and it's a podcast too, right? There was a true crime podcast about Pro- him that was also, probably yeah. yeah. I've uh I've had trouble con- finding everything to consume lately. I've just been bogged down with creating my own shit, you know. It's a good way to be. This yeah. is also what draws me. Some of my favorite. I'm a big film noir buff, and mm-hmm. my favorite film noirs, or some of them, are, are procedurals, like mm-hmm. super dry, like literally like Law and Order episodes that were made in the '40s <laughs> as fiction. You know, like Night in the City is awesome, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I mean, that's part of it. Like, True, True Detective was super compelling from a procedural aspect as well as like you know, from a emotional aspect as well, or philosophical one. But I just I'm drawn to that stuff, and truth is always stranger than fiction. And from I don't know what it is, but like it's not that I can't read fiction, but I just feel like it's the last I don't know the last fiction book I read. I I didn't have a good time. I it wasn't. I don't know. It just wasn't compelling. Whereas I've tried to read fiction in, in my adulthood and I read a lot of fiction as a kid. Yeah. And unless it's based off of a true story, like even some of my favorite movies, like uh ridiculous comedy, semi pro, right. You know, the Will Ferrell one yeah. about the, the ABA team, the yeah. theoretical ABA team, the Flint, Michigan tropics. And yeah. it's all based in <laughs> yeah. a situation that actually happened where the ABA folded and they brought four teams into the NBA and, you know, all of that actually happened, and it's like, oh, let's fit this story into it. So for those like kind of fictions, I really enjoy that kind of thing. I think the last fictional book that I read that I really enjoyed was World War Z, and that is a, not a normal fiction book. I don't know if you've ever read that one, but um, so it's all about a zombie war, but it is written from like different. Each chapter is like a perspective of a different person at a different point on the earth or in time and or in time right yeah and so some of the the stories are written from before the zombie war happened some of them are written from during it and some of them are written from after it as the world is like rebuilding and all this stuff yeah. and yeah. so it was a very very different perspective like a almost a sociological perspective of like what would happen in a zombie war and it it's really funny cool. it's funny you mentioned that because this is part of what i started to get obsessed about autobiographies so for example if you read Joe Perry's book and then you read Steven Tyler's book, you're getting these 
ridiculously different takes on the same events and the yeah, same yeah, story. Yeah. Uh, that is, you know, like for example, uh, Levon Helm's book and Robbie Robertson's book. Those two books are incredibly interesting and diametrically opposed at times and really just wild takes on history from different from different people that were literally next to each other for you know the most important moments in history and in their lives um like i inhaled the led zeppelin book written by the the manager whose take is completely who they literally leave in a jail they leave him in a moroccan prison for two years that hammer of the gods no 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 it's called I don't remember what it's called, but it's it's written by the manager whose name again escapes me because I can't remember anything. They and it's they fucking excuse me. They leave him in a prison for like a the better part of a year or at least six months or something because they suspect him. I mean, he, this is what he is what he says is that they leave him in prison. They don't even try to get him out because they uh they think he they suspect him of stealing the money from the hotel. There's the big Zeppelin heist. At the hotel where two million dollars in cash goes missing from a hotel safe. Did Bring It On Home by Peter Grant? Yeah. Ooh, it's not Peter Grant, but Peter Grant's book would be freaking amazing too. Oh my god, I didn't. I forgot he had a book. Oh, that's amazing. Peter Grant, muscle mother, like UK huge tall mother. I would love to read the Peter Grant book. That's incredible. Yeah, came out in uh, came out in twenty eighteen. Richard Cole's book, Stairway to Heaven. It's called. Okay. The obvious name. <laughs> yeah. That's why I forgot it. <laughs> Richard who? Richard Cole. Richard Cole. Uh Peter Grant's book. Now that would be a really interesting perspective. He was there from the beginning. He also he managed some other big names in that time. He was also essentially a street tough. Like he was a he was a Suge Knight character, huge imposing physical character. Yeah, yeah. An enforcer. Oh yeah, he's a big guy. Yeah, huge guy. Uh also like really could be mean. Like, you know, like he was the bad cop. He cat. worked with Jeff Beck, Yardbirds, yeah. uh Bad Company, Stone Crows, Stone the Crows. Yeah. And he's a bad dude. Like he he he's a real So the funny thing is, and this is another interesting thing is with autobiographies, is how much stuff do they tell you how much what gets in what gets out yep yep one of the that's one of the for example one of the really big disappointing things about joe scott heron's book is that he completely he doesn't talk at all about his heroin addiction which of course Hmm. dominates and and completely derails his life yeah and he he completely skims over it um same thing with um chuck berry's book which is great also amazing but he's very careful you know as 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 he would be um he was he was hounded by the cops like hounded ben made me watch the video of him in the hotel room like a while ago he ben was like we were trimming he's like wait you've never seen the chuck berry video I was like excuse me <laughs> he's like yeah. he pulls it out on his phone i was like god damn it <laughs> just like, badass oh my god god no can you you got to imagine chuck berry he's a rich black man in the south and he's he's screwing every white girl he can get his hands on. It was a matter of time. They they weren't going to let him do it. They, they you know, they they hounded him hounded him. And so there's again, there's stuff in the book that he's I'm sure he's too afraid to write and rightfully so because his whole life 
he's 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 chased and and trapped you know the whole time so yeah but yeah uh, that, that's a, a yeah so in in autobiographies documentaries and things like that um the biggest this just brings in the point but the biggest criticism of the last dance was like it was michael jordan's take on yeah. the michael jordan era right and so that brings up the point of just any documentary any autobiography yeah, you have to question who's writing it for what purpose and how honest yeah. they're being um what do they have to lose uh what do they have to gain you know like because yeah. sometimes an autobiography would be like oh well i'm just trying to you know like, like for instance this hasn't happened, but I could see like Justin Timberlake putting out an autobiography, like defending himself against what happened with the Britney Spears stuff back in the sure. day, right? Because he's sure. gotten a lot of shit about that recently. And there's a lot of things, you know, with the Janet Jackson, there's, there's a lot of stuff where just Justin Timberlake, you're like, are you doing this on purpose? Are you just a dick? Like, you know? Yeah. I'm not, I'm definitely stay away from autobiographies that are recent. Like the Jay-Z book, people talk about it being good, but like, I'm not interested in him currently like i want i want the like 60 70 year old him writing something like i i don't want to hear like I, i'm less interested because he has too much at stake now right it's it's when the stakes go down i mean that's when the truth comes out about not just you know you, you know jfk things like we're gonna learn you know all these papers are gonna be released 2025 or whatever because the people who would be responsible have, are dead you know so the, the those types of perspectives i find more compelling probably to that to that end, what one of the books that I absolutely love with Rick James's autobiography, Confessions of a Super Freak, is incredible in that I'm sure I don't he's he may or may not be holding anything back. You can't tell because the book is so salacious and crazy. But what's funny is there's a moment in the book where you can he's so because when that's the other thing when you read an autobiography, you're kind of rooting for them. You're like, go Rick, yeah, like you know, totally, it's because totally, totally. it's like it's just that way it's, you're, and you're reading it in his voice so it's cool it's like it's like you're literally sitting with him right and he's telling you a story um so you're rooting for rick the whole time but like he is such a crazy unhinged son of a bitch by the end of the book there's a moment in the book where you're kind of like you're going yeah rick yeah rick yeah rick oh my god rick what do you do like <laughs> and it's incredible like like his brother dies and his mother comes to visit him who's grieving and he is literally in the closet smoking crack the entire time and won't come out to see her. And he's justifying it in the book. He's talking about it. And you're kind of like, yeah. Oh, why Rick? Why? <laughs> you know? And you just, you gotta love it. You gotta love it. I, I, I love, that's one of my favorite moments of, of any reading, any documentary when you're like, Oh my God, like Eric Clapton's book. Wow, like he's a piece of shit. But like you're <laughs> in his voice, he's not going to admit he's a piece of shit. But you you can read between the lines of his book when he's telling the story about whatever it is. Like I stole George Harrison's wife. I mean, like dude, you can justify that any way you want. But you're a motherfucker. Like you like what kind of like he's your he was your friend. Like what yeah, are you doing? Quote, yeah, to quote the Far Side, there's all you know always other fish in the sea that is you know it's just like yeah why, why are you going for that oh man anyway it's just funny and of course eric clapton has revealed himself to be a total piece of shit so wouldn't it be interesting to read his an autobiography he would write now final three chapters would be what it would it would be racist homophobic trash fascinating to read yeah yeah i don't want to read a ted nugent biography you know i, mean? I totally do i totally do I feel like it would be too painful. 
this is an interesting thing that I'm I'm glad you brought this up because I had I do this stuff. I do this stuff where uh I when the Jordan Peterson thing started, I used to run into these Jordan Peterson acolytes at parties and I was I I would get so enraged. And I was like, "You know what? I've got to learn their word games so that I can dummy these idiots." And so I went down that rabbit hole of like studying his arguments and figuring out how to dismantle them so that when I would run into these fucking douchebags at parties or at shows or whatever the fuck I could, I could pants them. And, uh, I did the same thing with Richard Spencer. I did the same thing with, uh, uh, who else? Um, I mean, it's the only way that you can actually get forward to these people is if you can actually like break down the dot, you know, they are going to get, they're going to get defensive, but it's, it's going to be effective. And also not to be like, this is going to sound like some fucking hero shit. And, and, and it's not, it's not that I'm, you know, trying to be some kind of hero, but I do, you got to recognize as a white person and <clears throat> apart from being a guest in hip hop and all that stuff, um, it's not my black friends or people of my, my friends of color's responsibility to tackle these fucks. 100%. It's really not their responsibility. 100%. It's my responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so I do feel a duty to that in some sense. Like, yeah, you and I have that same belief, you know, Selena, you know, she just scrolling through the internet and there's a video of a 70 something year old white dude saying the N word to some dude and the, and the dude beating the shit out of him. Right. And just like hitting yeah. him in the face a bunch of times, knocks him down. The guy yeah. gets up, says it again. He does it again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then it just happens. It happens three times. And then the dude is still muttering as he leaves this old white fucker. Right. Yeah. And I'm watching this and I'm like, oh, it's, it's, it's great to see this dude get his comeuppance. And at the same time, I really wish that some of the white patrons in the in the in the restaurant would have done that, so he didn't have to do that. Yeah. Because, and I'm not saying it. Just there's this this thought process that it is on black people to call out racism at all times, <laughs> and it's just like if you put yourself in in the perspective of a black person and put yourself in their shoes, it's like that's got to be so exhausting. Just like I have to be, I have to be, I'm beaten up all the time. I have to call people out and I have to educate every white person that I come no. across. Like what the absolutely. fuck? You know what absolutely I mean? It's like, not. yeah, absolutely not. Right. So, so I agree with you 100% that it's like, it's, you know, I've, I, you know, I remember slapping a kid in middle school for saying the N word, you know, yeah. and, and doubling down on it. And it was just like, no, dude, you don't do that. Yeah. And it's just like, it's dude, gotta it's, be done. It's gotta be done. And, and, and also it's like, we like forget even the logistics of it it's like we have a better chance like we mm -hmm. have a way better well, they'll chance listen to of us. like exactly we have a better chance like the one the arguments that were really tough and this one was hard for me because i had a lot of not a lot but just i had a few close friends so when you have close friends that you know for example the white privilege argument the white privilege issue that's a really tough for example argument to make uh you know my like my my white friends that grew up poor for example they have a lot further distance to travel to understand that concept, right? Because they're going, well, I grew up poor. I had to deal with shit, like whatever, you know, like I didn't get over on anything. Um, I was poor as fuck and, you know, and so that's a tough, I've had to have those conversations and I haven't won all those conversations. They're, those are tough to win or, or not win, you know, win arguments, but like tough to, to negotiate and um, to make any progress. Right. And it, cause it's not yeah. about winning. It's just about uh, uh, helping to, to begin a person to change their perspective. Yeah. You got to put, you got to put a straw on their back. It's not going to be the one that breaks, breaks it, but you gotta, you gotta put your, your, your straws on there. And, but, um, 
but those arguments were tough to have. And I did, I felt a, a need to do that. And, and like Toronto, just not that, you know, an aside, but like the scene in Toronto is exciting and depressing at times. And it's very interesting because Toronto, people don't think about it this way, but it's the biggest Caribbean community outside of the Caribbean. You know, we have probably one of the most diverse cities. Like it yeah, is one of the most diverse cities on the planet. Yeah. It's why we have Caribana, but which is a wonderful, beautiful thing and, and, and a wonderful thing to have. And so it's a, you know, it's a wonderful thing to have, except that Toronto likes, so Toronto likes to wear the diversity cap for like the week that Caribana happens. And then we're going to just fucking ignore that entire community for the rest of the year. So, you know, there's good and bad. Right. And, and so, and the reason I'm bringing all this up is that the city changed where you started to have, uh, there would be people of color on the boards of, uh, you know, festival submissions and, uh, you know, youth programming and um, all these different kinds of things. Like you've, you've had diversity implemented and not just, not just implemented in terms of like, you know, choosing to hire people of color, but also like um, mandated. Like, for example, I couldn't book a show. There was a venue, Handlebar, great venue. They wouldn't let me book a show unless I had a person of color performing on the, on the bill. And that some people might have a knee jerk reaction, be like, well, that's ridiculous. I don't get to tell you who to book and stuff. And it's like, well, no, I mean, we have to mandate. We have, if we don't mandate this stuff, it's not going to happen naturally. We have to mandate it. They're important mandates to have. Um, And these are the growing pains. These are the growing pains of undoing, I don't know, what do you want to call it? 400 years of institutional racism, whatever you call it. Those are the things that have to be done. And we're in the end comfortable, you know, growing pains of that. And, I saw my white friends, artists, struggling with that, struggling with this very strong uh, Afrocentric movement in art, uh, in culture, in music, in the city. And yeah, like I lost gigs to younger artists of color. Um, and we had to deal with some of that. I had friends that were not dealing well with that stuff. And what you got to, the perspective that you got to maintain and the things that you, you know, you have to realize is like, Sure, you've lost some gigs to young black women, okay? But it pale the, the amount of gigs you've lost pales in comparison to the amount of gigs that you've gotten because you're a friendly white face in hip hop. Like I cannot tell you how much I got over because where other black friends of mine couldn't because I was this friendly white face doing hip hop music, you know? Especially if you're in little towns and stuff like that. Oh my and god, then- I'm sure it's even yeah. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, as, as the white person on the bill, you have to be the ambassador a lot of the times, because if, you know, the person of color is coming in and they're trying to do the negotiation, sometimes it's just like overtly racist. Sometimes it's just, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So it's just, it was just, so those conversations were happening all over the city and it was like, this is growing pains. I mean, you know, it's growing pains and we're in the, the phase and everyone's like leaping to these, you know, well, it doesn't, that's not right. And da, 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 da. it's like, okay, well, we're just, this is a difficult time. Mm-hmm. We've got to let this stuff play out a little bit. It's going to be all right. Right. Yeah. You know, we don't have to like, <laughs> these aren't like draconian measures, you know, that we have to have a person of color on the bill. Like it's not a big yeah. deal, man. Like just, Hey, like, what do you think? Like, let's have a different voices on the thing. Like let's, you know, I don't know. It, it just, um, it's just a dip. It, we've just got to do, and as white people, I think, and guessing hip hop, I think we just have to help. We just have to kind of help bring our 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 friends along a little yeah. bit, you know, our 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 guys, our girls, 
Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I was listening to this interview this morning with John Amici. Do you, if you remember, I don't know if you remember him. He was a former NBA player. Uh, he was one of the first players to come out as gay, and he is a psychologist now. He's British, but he came over his senior year uh, to play high school in Toledo, and then went into college. And did he change his game. name? Because John Collins was was a Nets player. Uh no no uh, I don't think he he ever I don't think he ever changed his name I guess I'll check that okay, but, no it's not John Collins sorry uh, I was gonna say John Collins is the 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 Hawks player right now so he was born in Boston I guess but he's he's British American Nigerian right okay. and so uh but he he has an amazing perspective and amazing way of putting things and he talked about just as a psychologist is essentially like he was talking about how exhausted he is having to explain to white people all of these concepts. But one really good analogy that he put is like, you know, an architect could have built a building and it's a very beautiful building. And let's say they built this in the 18, you know, 90s or something like that. And because the building doesn't have any, it, you know, it only has stair access. That means that handicapped people are going to have a harder time getting into the building. Right. Yeah. And that does not mean that the architect was racist even though in the sense of american constitution and all this stuff it actually you know they were racist it has discriminatory outcomes yeah but but the point yeah but the point is that regardless of intent there are discriminatory outcomes the fact is that there is a building that people cannot access right and so we need to change and that building represents the system and the system was made for to for easier access for certain people mm -hmm. and it's like unless we you know actually do you know, like fix the building. Yeah. You can't just keep arguing and be like, yeah, it's just, it just, of course he's much more articulate than I am. And, uh, you know, all that stuff. And I just listened to it this morning as I was half asleep, but. Yeah. And we need to keep, you know, we need to keep grabbing, learning those word games. We have to keep learning and adding to our word games or mm -hmm. our, our syntaxes, yeah. the little cheat codes. Those analogies are just really good to like, to help people visualize something. We all have, we all have those friends too. It's like, my sister's a little bit like this. Like I love my sister to death, and but she won't take a, a slice of a, a, like a modicum of advice from me. Mm -hmm. It it has to be said from a certain person, and and sometimes that's what it takes too. Sometimes it's like the word game can be right, but the timing and the and the individual can be wrong. Um, yeah. And so that's why yeah. we have to keep playing them. That's why we have to keep like playing those cards until you know until the hand until the, the hand gets one or whatever. And I don't know. I mean, I part of it too is like. I feel like we're, this is a really fascinating time and I mean, time in history. Like somebody, I read this the other day, someone was saying that like anyone born before 1990, take into account that anyone born before 1990, the changes that they've seen in their lives are like catastrophic, like tectonic shifts of culture and technology that like, you know. It's traumatizing in its own way, right? <laughs> it's crazy. I'm, I was born in 79, so... I am that. I am like rotary phone. I was born during rotary phones. You know, like the fucking. <laughs> I remember the rotary like, phones very well. The page, the pager era, like, um, and we all, and that, that, no, that's a tired, that's a tired thing back in my day type talks. I mean, pagers are dope. They need to bring that shit back, dude. Like, I want to get rid pagers of my cell phone. Like, like smartphones are cool and all, but it is just so distracting. There's so much bullshit that comes 24 with it. Twenty-four hour access to someone is not, not what you deserve simply because you have a phone and they have a phone. Dude, but it, uh, 
it, what is this concept that we need? It's like, oh, well, you know, there could be an emergency at any time. So I need to have my phone on me because, if, you know, there could be an emergency and someone needs to get a hold of me. And it's just like, well, you know, you could put your phone down and you could go out for a couple hours and come back. And like the likelihood of that emergency happening are, is very low. But we have been convinced to like have this paranoia that there could be an emergency that happens. So we need to have our phone on us at all the times. And that emergency could be news breaking, could be, yeah. you know, death in the family, it could be anything, but it's like, gotta keep checking, gotta keep checking, gotta keep checking. I, I really appreciate, cause and what you don't realize that you just did right there is that is the voice of my mom. We call my mother <laughs> the doomsayer because at any I given moment, she will, she will be able to tell you the worst case scenario for any given I am your mother. Any given particular <laughs> moment or situation, however however trivial you might think it, it is. Um it, and, and I so I, I really appreciate it when you put it in that way where you're like, it's because <laughs> we need this technology because in because the worst case scenario is like, oh my God, someone can't get a hold of like somebody's in trouble and can't get a hold of you for a few minutes. Well, fear dictates essentially everything that is done, right? Fear dictates so much of the actual construct of society. You know, all the anxieties and stuff like that, all, you know, it, it all comes from like the fear of death, right? Whether it's a fear of death, fear of change, change is like a big thing where like people equate change to war. They, they equate change yeah. to like violence. And that's, yeah. that's not a good thing because, you know, you can have peaceful change. I like how too, it's when you think about all the technological mo movements, have like pornography has been like the the real like pusher of a lot of like 100%. the reason we got the internet the reason, the reason we, we got, got 4k yes the reason we got dvds right the yeah, reason we yeah. got the reason we got so much shit like who <laughs> what industry is pushing the virtual reality shit the hardest come well, on get, dude that's actually a great point yeah Porn is porn is the pioneer. The it, really, it really is because we. Oh my god! If there's a new way to deliver porno to someone, we've got to we've got to be on the forefront of it. Okay. Well, and so, there's so much disposable dirty money. You know, I've cleaned. Well, okay, in music as well, but in, in art and culture too. There's, I've cleaned more money that I'm sure that I'm I care to admit, but for other people, but yeah, porno is pushing a lot of stuff. So it's fear, but I I keyed in on uh, fear of death, which I think you could kind of put pornography sort of as an adjacent to the fear of death because it's like the procreative, you know, the procreative gene or the procreative kind of um, need. Need for life, you know? For the, it's, you know, it's the fear of death. So you need to have as much sex because you could die tomorrow, right? Yeah. You don't want to be on your deathbed and be like, I wish I had more sex. And, the, and well, the other thing about that's interesting there is the fear of sex. I just watched Taxi Driver the other, like I rewatched oh, yeah. it classic and the whole incel narrative yeah like the thing that's the i mean i love this i love watching movies from 40 years ago that have no idea how relevant they still are or really you know and they're, they're, oh my christ yes i love that, that was, yeah. an incredible by the way we talked about fiction that is a book that i absolutely devoured and mm -hmm. it's one of the coolest reads ever because it's literally written in a different language almost like you don't even understand what's happening until the third chapter because the language you have to get used to the the slang which i thought was just such a wild way of writing a book and that's why i like the wire actually because the wire they yeah. just they, they throw you into the story right you are immersed into this yeah. baltimore culture of police and criminals 
and you have to pick up on their way of speech and everything, and they're not yeah. going to um, coddle or or you know make it different for you. Like you, yeah. this is this is you are going to observe this, and you yeah. will get it, but it might just take you a moment of confusion. I love I it. Love I, that. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Um, but I do, and I I do love watching those movies that are just like incredibly relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but they have no idea how relevant they are. Like that's you know the whole incel thing is a really scary, Terrifying. scary subsect of whatever conspiracy people, right wing nuts, religious fanatic. Like there's a weird thing and um yeah, fear of sex and fear of and then of course you get Jordan Peterson talking about how like this whole concept of forced monogamy, which was mis- a misunderstood concept when he when he was talking about it, but this idea that like we ha- we essentially live in a forced monogamy. So his point is that we live in a in a society that wants us to get married and find partners and get married. Right? There's this social pressure. So that's what he means by by force. Yeah, that's what he means by forced monogamy, which of course was taken very well out of context. And not to give him any credit, but the point of it is that if you have somebody that doesn't engage in that, if you have somebody that completely misses that, what you get are serious problems, which he's right about that's where the incels come in where it's like you have people that are completely removed, completely unsocialized, completely unsexualized and their ideas about sex and women and all this stuff are, are super warped and bent because they're not informed by any sense of actual reality or any human interaction. Um, And so, you know, to get back to your technology point, the irony of course being that like, does it bring us together or separate us? You know, it's hard to, it's hard to know. It definitely yeah. entrenches the two lives thing because you have a life online and you have a real life and they're very disparate, which is problematic. Yeah. So. Yeah. That def- yeah. You create the two selves and then you create cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that, uh, that are coming in, you know, and they're going to work and they're being all friendly and stuff. And then they go home and they have four burner accounts on Twitter and they're attacking every, uh, you know, they're watching all sorts of stuff. They're attacking Jamel Hill. They're attacking, you know, uh, Charles Barkley. They're attacking anyone that they want. They're taking Ennis Cantor's side and being like yeah. first ballot hall of famer should be in there, but he got blacklisted. Cause he, you know, that there's this dude on Twitter that literally said that he said, Ennis Cantor was a first ballot hall of famer until he got blacklisted by the NBA. And it was like, yeah. do you, Watch the watch basketball. I Dennis love, Cantor's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he got some blocks periodically, and he was a stash brother with Stephen Adams in OKC, but he's not a unplayable fucking bout. Unplayable in the fourth quarter of any game oh, of, horrible, any, of any meaning. Horrible. I love that you brought this back to sports because people like to talk about burner accounts, this double life thing. And when, when people talk burner t- accounts, they always talk about KD having burner accounts. And what gets glossed over, and I'm not doing this for Premrock, who is my homie, he's from Philly, and he's a diehard Sixers fan. And if you were to look back at the Sixer, like the Sixer story over the last decade is one of the most bizarre, ridiculous, insane stories in sports. But a story Hilarious. that gets glossed over is Colangelo having burner accounts mm-hmm. and revealing and revealing uh, player medical information that is hella private in order to like have a burner account to justify a move to the public that he made that everybody thought was shitty, like. His burner account story is fucking absolutely insane and totally glossed over. Nobody talks about it. It is one of the most incredible scandals uh, of the uh, sports scandals of the past decade. I would put it up there with like the Houston, you know, uh, sign 
watching thing that the you know the Houston. Oh yeah, the the Astros. Fuck yeah, I would put it up there. I mean, and and of course it just gets glossed over. And Colangelo comes from like this is a family lineage of of sports royalty. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the double life thing is weird, and I think to bring it also bring it back to being a musician, and you you know what this you know it's like. No one gives a fuck about Andrew Kilgore. Okay. Like fresh kills is this, the thing it's like this thing that I created and, or, and I've got it and I'm beholden to it now, but no one really gives a shit about Andrew Kilgore. And it's like, everybody wants, well, not everybody wants, I mean, I'm not famous enough for it to become like a serious issue, but it's an issue. Um, and we're all kind of indoctrinated into this. Like we've got to have, Oh, we're got to have a brand. We got to have this and that and this and that. And that's a weird, just a weird thing, you know, it's Very a weird, weird thing weird. to, and, and, you know, you make decisions based upon like, well, what's best for fresh kills versus what's best for, you know, um, for Andrew Kilgore, for me as a person or whatever. And those, those decisions are tough. Those decisions are tough to make. It's, and also other people collude in those decisions. Like one of the things that I love and I'm how I met you was I was obsessively on the road for the better part of a decade. Like I just, it, I was completely uh obsessed with it i was addicted to it a 100 addiction i don't have an addictive personality about substances or things like that but uh the like the 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 need needing the daily affirmation of like being in front of a crowd i don't care if it's five people i needed it right um and uh you know like just dutifully obeying the needs of fresh kills over my own personal needs and then coming out at the end of a decade being like holy shit like all of my personal relationships are frayed. My my parents are getting old and they need help. My sister is languishing. You know, uh, I'm totally estranged from the community in Toronto that I that that I came up in. Like, I've, I've I'm not in touch with. I don't know what's going on. In the, you know, um, I'm totally out of touch with all that stuff. And just being like, wow, like, uh, I've got to pay attention and, and it was funny because at that time at around 2019 i fell ass backwards into making the right decision to stay off the road whereas any other year i would have been five when the pandemic hit i would have been five months into booking a european tour would have been terrible um but i came to that decision i had i have to like i really like fresh kills is going to be okay but andrew isn't like i gotta take care of this motherfucker right here because so anyway yeah. you're ash adams but i don't even know your first name like how fucking weird is that it's not hash it's a Ash? mystery. That's Colin. <laughs> Colin. That's a well, well, going going off the branding thing. It's like, yeah, we ex- yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, what's I, don't, your I don't like my name. What? What's your birthday? Oh, it just happened. It was February thirteenth. So, well, okay. Congratulations, there. If we got pulled over, if we were going somewhere and we got pulled over by the cops, they separated us, and they were like, and this has happened to me, and they're like, who's <laughs> who's your friend? And I'm like, oh, hash. They're like, what's his name? I'm like, I don't, his name's Hash Adams. And they'd be like, you don't know your friend's name? You know, it's like, fucking, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, what do you want me to say? I don't know. How strange is that? How fucking weird is that? Yeah. Going off the branding thing, it's like, with this whole podcast, I was like, okay, well, what do I go by, right? Because I'm supposed yeah. to be, a, I'm this podcast host. I'm like, well, what am I? Am I myself? And it's technically, mm-hmm. this is, this podcast will be the most honest representation of who I am and what I represent, you know, whether it's me getting pissed off about Howard Schultz fucking taking the Sonics away from Seattle, whether it's, you know, me talking about love my love of McDonald's, whether it's about, you know, whatever it is, this is the honest representation of me. Yeah. It's like, well, what do I want to go by? 
And ultimately, I just have a lot of apprehension about putting my name on anything. But it's 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 very interesting because I want to build this brand, so I mm. gotta put my name on it. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's just I'm having this identity crisis where it's like, I think it was my grandma's brother, but when he passed away, like one of the last things he said was talking about the hubris of humanity. He's just like, wow. He was just talking about like the death of all people is going to be their hubris. You know what I mean? And it's just like that stuck with me a lot, but it's just, I, while I, ha I have, so once again, going back to this cognitive dissonance, I am having this issue where it's like, I want to be heard. I want to be recognized. I yeah. want to talk. I want to be able to talk to famous people because I want to be able to learn from them and all that stuff. But also I don't feel I'm special in any way whatsoever. Right. And so I'm just like, well, so I'm having this struggle. Like, I want to build this brand. How do I put my name forth? How do I brand myself? And so I thought, I actually thought about like going back to, you know, making music and stuff. I thought about putting out like out like an album, like getting rid of the Hash Adams and, and not putting a name out at all. Right. And yeah. just like literally being a nameless, just, just a project. Right. Yeah. And not having any names or anything attached to it. But I always have that, that struggle of this like, making the music to make the music, but also wanting to be recognized. And then when you recognize that you want to be recognized, it makes you, or at least in my instance, it makes me feel selfish. I'm just like, well, why do I deserve right. recognition? Uh, it, it's just, it's very interesting. So I had that whole battle while being on stage, you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause you know, just like I'd be on stage and I'd be like, I like this. I'm really enjoying the admiration of like things, but also what the fuck am I doing? You know what I mean? I've had a, I've racked my brain about this exact problem. And, um, so I have a lot of, in, I have a lot of things to say because I think this is a common thing that we, a lot of us face and not just musicians, this is a human problem. Um, I spent, uh, 10 years of my life trying to, cause, cause this is the confusing thing about art, right? In general, it's like, if you're making art, the, the branding thing, let's talk about the direction of things. Because what you're just what you're talking about is almost like two things that are antithetical, right? They're moving in absolutely opposite directions. And so how do they coexist, right? And I think the thing that ends up happening is, and this is ironic for me in a lot of ways, because the thing that so the thing that got me off the ground, like the thing that actually changed my life, like in terms of the art that I put out were the routines, like doing the NPC routines. And the thing about those routines was I built them from the audience backwards. I didn't, they didn't come out of me, like who I am as a person. It wasn't a personal representation of me at all. It was, how do I, I mean, I, I was battling. So I, I had to like impress judges too. I was like, well, you know, Jake one was the fucking judge, the final. I was like, how do I get this motherfucker to freak out? You know, it was like, how do I, and, and essentially that's a different direction in terms of like what you're doing. And I think we forget that art is, you give art, like art is giving. The, the, the direction is this way, not yeah. this way, right? Yeah. So yeah. branding is all this way. Like I want, look, I want likes and follows and shares and buys and that yeah. stuff. And we're measured by that. Our worth is measured by that, which is a big mistake. But you got to, you have to keep in your mind that art is giving. And what's funny is I quickly forgot it. As soon as it got, as soon as my life changed, all I wanted was like more, I wanted more and more and more of that. And also I was, I had the identity crisis of everyone thinks that this is what I am. Everybody thinks that this NPC thing that I'm doing is what I am. So like the irony of, for example, Premrock and I would slave over like 
this barstool prophecy fucking deep hip-hop record that we would build and we put everything we had into it and money and promo and pr and videos and all this shit we book a european tour we travel halfway across the fucking world and we're standing in czech republic in front of people that don't even fucking speak english and they're and the, there's a fucker in the front row that's like kills do the transformers routine and I remember being like so fucking frustrated by that, right? I was like, well, fuck, man. Like, okay. So, and of course, what am I going to do? I'm going to bitch Free about bird. that. I'm, I'm going to fucking bitch about it. I'm Free sitting bird. here. I am. I'm sitting here bitching about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. but it makes perfect sense is like the things, the art that I built that was like, how do I serve somebody? Like, how do I entertain somebody? Like, what do they want? Right. When I thought about art that way, that was the stuff that was transformative to my career as an artist. And no one can name a fucking Fresh Kills record. Like, nobody. And what, you know, close friends of mine or something. Um, Do I have a I'm not going to ask you, don't worry. Um, but like, <laughs> but I was like, like, I just listened to your newest record and I can't remember the name, but it's great. Right, so whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but, but it really is true, right? It's like when you shift the direction from look at me, look at me, look at me to how do I serve somebody, right? And I, I think one thing that really that really helped me with that too was being an engineer and being a producer in general. Those are support staff roles traditionally, right? Like those are those are backups. Like I'm a I'm a, I'm a I'm a behind the scenes guy. I'm a studio rat, and so I was always serving artists. Um, and being a professional, that's you know that that's what being a professional is 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 becoming I don't know, not becoming a slave to it, but like. Uh, really like laying down your own person. I've seen so many people get caught up with this stuff where like they they can't be a professional because unless the artist they're working with is competent, you know, they can't do it. Right. Like it's, it's like, and we like, they like to talk about things like artistic integrity and stuff. And it's like, well, no, you're just not a professional. Like you're not being professional. Like it. And that was the thing. Like I'm still a professional sound engineer 15 years later because not because I was very, even that good at it, but because if somebody came in the door, even if they were terrible MCs or just starting or whatever the hell it was, I would treat them with the same respect and professionalism that I would treat, you know, a fucking Shad or Scratch Bat, whoever else came in. Um, so that's a big thing. And the direction, if you can really put yourself in that seat of you're giving this stuff, like this is like work backwards. It's less, it's less fulfilling to you. Like you have to have your passion projects to like feel good about you know, and express your personal self because, but that's therapy, that's personal exploration. And that's not that that can't be valuable, but you have to separate it a bit. And also, uh, you know, that was the fallout of, you know, after 2019, I was like, I'm going to get off the road. I'm going to build my business back up. I'm going to stop this. And the fallout of that, the, the personal fallout was the, was me wrestling with like, um, not having that affirmation daily of playing a show and having people love what I'm doing and high five me and pat me on the ass. Um, but that's a transformative thing. Like me becoming like working at Unity Charities and being a facilitator there, teaching, like settling into my role as an elder and giving, you know, as opposed to like, look at me, look at me, look at me. Um, that has been a transformative thing for me and it's helped me. And it hasn't been easy. Like, like fucking I'm therapy. I'm in need of therapy desperately. And it would have helped me make that transition faster so i'm sorry to babble on about it but i had yeah. i've had so many thoughts about it and and if you can if you can tap into that um uh, if you can tap into like the giving side of it as opposed to the taking you're you're fine i mean you're you're gonna be you're gonna be fine yeah 
and, and don't apologize for babbling. This is literally no, the I'm babbling point on. of this place. Uh, yeah. For instance, you know, I don't know. Well, I, I assume you didn't, but uh, I interviewed a, his name's Yeti Blanc um, last mm. week, and he's a podcast producer for Miami uh, Sports Herald, Miami Herald Sports Podcast, The Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody. He's the producer mm. for it. So I had him come on, but he's been diagnosed as hyperverbal. He's a very talkative dude by his mm. psychologist or whatever. The point is I asked him like a question and he would answer. It took him like 15 minutes for an answer. Yeah. Nothing against that. Some of his answers were so poignant and amazing. Like he was talking about growing up in North Florida, being a Braves fan, how the chop actually was brought over in the eighties with Deion Sanders from Florida state and his whole like battle with like going to a game in 2019 and finding himself doing the chop and feeling dirty. And like, wow, it was a great, it was a really good interview. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he, I felt like it was a really good path for change, right? And, and I feel like that's very important in, in, in today's day and age where it's like he, he's telling the story of growing up in, in, you know, in in all elements, you know, he a lot of people would be like, oh, you're being uh, formed to be a religious racist, right? And he, you know, shedded wow. all of that. And he's mm -hmm. a very intuitive, um, loving person now. And it's really cool to just see uh, uh, you know, a story like that. So it, it ended up working yeah. out really good. Point is, the interviews, Babylon. yeah, babble. You know, we're babbling. Mm -hmm.